See, it's okay when we do things out of order. We survive. It's all right. The story of a third grade teacher who was teaching her students about mammals in the sea. And she mentioned that the whale is the largest mammal in the sea, but went on to explain that even though it's one of the largest sea creatures, it has a very narrow throat. And so it has to feed off of smaller things in the ocean and could never swallow something as large as, say, a human. You kind of see where she's going with this, right? Well, there was a little third grade student who raised her hand, obviously having grown up in the church, and said, Teacher, teacher, that's not true because a whale swallowed Jonah. And the teacher said, No, a whale didn't swallow Jonah. She said, Let me tell you, let me explain again. It's a very large sea creature, but it has a very narrow throat. It would have been physically impossible. So the story of Jonah just isn't true. Well, the little girl just couldn't stand it. She said, well, that's not true. In fact, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah myself. Well, the teacher pressed it, and she says, but what if Jonah's not in heaven? What if Jonah is, you know, the other place? Very quickly, she said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> oh. She didn't have a reply for that one, I'm sure. Well, this morning we're going to look at one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. And no, I'm not going to defend the feasibility of how a well could have possibly swallowed Jonah. As far as I'm concerned, it was an act of God. It was a miracle, which by definition is something that takes place because of divine intervention, is not able to be replicated by humans, and is beyond a logical explanation. And just as we think about this, keep in mind, we're talking about the God who spoke the universe into existence. We're talking about the God who created man out of dust and breathed life into his lungs. We're talking about the God who parted the Red Sea, made the blind to see, the the lame to walk, who brought someone from death into life. So no, I don't have a problem with a great fish swallowing Jonah, nor will I explain it beyond the fact that that's just what God determined to do, and yes, he is able. Far more important than understanding how it happened is understanding why it happened. What was God intending to teach Jonah? And from that, what does he intend to teach us? You see, Jonah is not the main character in this story, nor is the whale. God stands front and center. There are truths that we are intended to learn about him. And not only that, Jonah is a story that speaks of things yet to come. There are truths in the story of Jonah that teach us about Christ. And that certainly applies to us. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you, we want to do so humbly. We want to take your word to heart. We want to listen to what it has to say and consider what it says to our hearts, to our lives, how it informs us, exposes us, guides us, and encourages us. Your word is living and active. It is alive and well. So would you speak to our hearts this morning in gracious mercy, 
Help us to hear what you want us to hear. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Jonah, chapter 1. I stopped at verse 16. I'll tell you why here in a minute. I'll tell you why now. I stopped at verse 16 because in the Hebrew, it actually, that section ends at verse 16. Because what you're going to see is verse 17 and then verse 10 of chapter, or yeah, verse 10 of chapter 2 act as bookends to this section of Scripture. Let me show you how. So verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of that fish three days and three nights. Now go down to verse 10 of chapter 2. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. You see how those two passages act as bookends to this section in Scripture. In verse 17, God appointed the great fish to to swallow Jonah. And then in verse 10, God appointed that same fish, commanded the fish to spit Jonah onto dry land. Once again, I want you to notice that God is in control. God appointed. God commanded. God hurled a great wind onto the sea. God told the wind to stop and the seas to stop raging. And they obeyed. In the midst of all this chaos that is going on among Jesus, or Jonah and all these sailors, God is ultimately in control. Now that's easy for you and I to see from our perspective. But I can assure you, if we entered into the life of Jonah, we would see and understand that that was not his perspective. In fact, I can assure you that Jonah was expecting to die. As soon as that great fish swallowed him whole, he anticipated that that would be his watery grave. Even his mention of the three days and three nights alludes to that fact because in that culture, that was the period of time necessary to determine that someone was officially dead. So at the very least, Jonah is convinced that he is knocking on death's door, that that wave or that well would be a watery grave. At least that's what he assumed would be the case. But let's look at the story in chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and he heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were were around me forever. I'm going to pause there and consider the fact that that Jonah is now writing these words looking back on that experience. He recalls the events of this particular scene and what I find interesting is that as he does, he shifts from this narrative story into poetry. Why does he do that? Well, our resident poetry professor, Kyle Bassett, where's Kyle? Kyle knows the answer to this. And the reason is, is because poetry is the language of emotion. 
It's as if he can't quite find the words and he composes a song in an effort to communicate his heart in the midst of this situation. This song begins as a dirge. A dirge is a a song of lament for the dead. Note in verse 2, he says that he's calling out from the depths of Sheol. That's a place of utter darkness, of deep, deep despair. And Jonah recognizes that he is there because of God's actions. Now, the sailors might have thrown him overboard, but he says in verse 3, God cast him into the deep. It was God who swallowed him into the sea. It was God who expelled him from his sight. If we follow Jonah's story from the very beginning, what you're going to find is that he eloquently portrays it as going deeper and deeper into the depths all the way to death's door. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he went down to Joppa. And then when he boarded that ship, he went down into the hold of that ship. When he was swallowed by that great fish, he went down into the stomach of that fish, and then that fish went down into the depths of the ocean. Even now, in verse 6, he descended all the way down to the roots of the mountains. He is so far down, he is at the depth of death's door. If you follow what he's writing, it's beautifully written. And I think the reason he does that is because he wants us to feel the depth of his emotion in the depth of our own soul. Jonah doesn't want us to be some passive witness. He wants us to enter in to his story, to be a a participant. And, And for many of us, this is not hard to do because chances are you've been to some dark places, places where you've felt helpless, maybe even forsaken and abandoned by God. To the point that, like Jonah, you had no expectation of coming out on the other side. And maybe for some of you, you didn't want to. You just wanted the misery to end. I believe that's where we find Jonah. He has been overcome by confusion and despair. He feels isolated from God in a hopeless situation. And the only possible relief that he could see as that seaweed wraps around his neck is death. Death is the only escape. Jonah is in a prison from which he cannot break free, and he is paralyzed by fear. Reminds me of a story of a Spanish priest by the name of Carlos Valles. It's a true story. He was a missionary in India. He gives an account of one day as he was riding his bike through the countryside, as he often did. He noticed it became eerily quiet all of a sudden, which was unusual. It it was as if nature stood still for a second. He could kind of sense danger. So he stops riding his bike, gets off, and begins to look around. And when he does, he notices that a cobra has raised its head above the grass. Hood spread, tongue flickering. And as he looked at that cobra, he just watched the path of his gaze and saw it staring at a bird on a bush just a few feet away. Listen to what he writes in this experience. He says, 
I'd heard that snakes do that to the birds, and now I was seeing it. The bird had wings, but it could not fly. It had a voice, but it could not sing. It was frozen, stiff, mesmerized. The snake knew its own power and had cast its spell. The prey could not escape, though it had the whole sky for its range. This is where we find Jonah. In the belly of this great fish. In many ways, he's lost his song. He is paralyzed in fear. And drowning in a pit of despair. And if we're honest, many of us have been to a similar place. And some may be there now. Immobilized by fear or discouragement or depression. We may try to pray, try to read our Bible, try to come to church, and yet we still somehow feel stuck. Others are trapped in destructive or addictive patterns of sin, reaping the consequences of sinful choices. But instead of running to God, you're running from Him, only to find yourself descending deeper and deeper into those pits of despair. See, the story of Jonah was written so that we could connect to the emotion of his experience because there will be times in our life when his experience describes our reality. But don't lose your song. Don't get paralyzed in fear. Listen to what Jonah does and learn to cry out to God. Let's look at the second half of verse 6. But you have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. For I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. In, in the midst of his dis, distress, with what little breath he had left, Jonah cries out to God. Because in that moment, Job, Jonah realizes that, that God is his only hope. It's, it's at this point that you'll see the mood begin to shift. Things literally start to look up from here. Jonah has descended into the depths of despair, but God will lift him up. Jonah has been running from God, but God has always been near. And the instant that Jonah cries out to God, God stands ready to rescue. When Jonah can sink no lower, God intervenes and lifts him up. It's here that Jonah begins to recognize the foolishness of his selfish pursuit, even to the point of considering the plight of those who go to false idols. I think at this point he may be thinking back to just days ahead uh, or days ago when the sailors each cried out to their own God, only to be met with silence. You remember that? And yet here he is, completely undeserving having run from God in rebellion, and yet God hears his cry. 
He deserves death. And yet God brings deliverance. Jonah is rescued by the gracious hand of God. And Jonah knows it. His song turns from a dirge, from the pit of despair, into a song of thanksgiving. Jonah worships the Lord. There's a psalm that says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And that's the song that Jonah begins to sing. And you know what? It just doesn't matter where you've been or how far you've gone. God stands ready to rescue. See, Jonah realizes that when we run from God, we are rejecting his grace. And his grace is ever-present. And he stands ready to rescue. I ran across a little quote from A.W. Tozer this week. Very simple. Caught my attention. Anytime Tozer writes, it catches my attention. He's my favorite author. And he said, God never loses heart. Never. That's a blessed truth, isn't it? I've been coaching a little league baseball team with Grant and some of his friends for, I don't know, seven years now at least. Sweet, sweet kids. Not the best athletes in the league, but I just love them to death. Love their families, love them. Have such great history with them. And this year has been fun because these are kids who may not be as talented as the other kids in the league, but they have such great heart that when they play together, they do more than what they're capable of, really. It's just been fun to watch and see what they accomplished. Well, Saturday, the wheels came off, and I don't know what happened, but they just could not do anything right. It was like they had reverted five years earlier and making mistakes that I've seen, I haven't seen them make in six, seven years. It's just crazy. I was sitting there watching this thinking, what in the world is going on? And they were frustrated, and I was frustrated, and at some point in time, I just said, well, this is just not our day. I gave up. And then I got to this in my sermon. I thought, thank you, Lord, that you never give up. He never loses hope. He's like the prodigal father who's just waiting for his son to come home. God is waiting for us to cry out in faith. And that's what Jonah did. I want you to notice in verse 9, that Jonah's response to what he believes will be his ultimate rescue is a vow of obedience. Not in order to earn God's love, but in response to God's love. It's why Jesus would say, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. See, we don't love, we don't love in, order, in order to merit God's favor. We love as a response to God's favor. That's what Jonah is experiencing in this moment. To the point that it comes to the climax of his song when he says, salvation is from the Lord. In the depths of his darkness, Jonah finds God. And now that he is the recipient of God's mercy, he understands how important that truth really is. Jonah says the Lord saves, and he knows because the Lord has saved him. Such a powerful account with such amazing imagery when you start to realize how he's writing to describe his experience. Which is why I think Jesus turns to Jonah in the life of his ministry and points to that example. It's a story that everybody would have remembered. 
So let's look at that together. Turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Let's listen to what happens as Jesus is in the midst of his ministry. It says in verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monsters we just discussed, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This account comes on the heels of a a series of challenges by the religious leaders. They challenged Jesus for having eaten with his disciples on the Sabbath as they were walking down the road, picking off grains of wheat as they were going by the plants and and eating for for what little sustenance they could give them. And they said, no, you were harvesting that's work and they condemned him for it when he healed a a man's hand that had been withered on the sabbath they condemned him for the same thing that's work on the sabbath and and then when jesus healed someone who was demon possessed they said yeah but only by the power of satan and then after all that they have the audacity to ask Jesus for a sign. They asked him for a sign when they were surrounded by miracles. And here's why. They refused to accept that they were the ones who needed the miracle most. Like Jonah, they were navigating their life on their own, and it was good. They didn't believe Jesus. Why? Because they didn't believe they needed Jesus. They were doing just fine on their own. You see, Jonah had to come to the end of himself before he cried out to God. And I think the same thing is true for you and I. The Ninevites will stand in judgment because they recognized a need that the religious leaders were unwilling to. To acknowledge. Listen to this. The most important miracle that Jesus will ever do is the miracle that he does in you. Do you need a miracle? That's the question. Our salvation is from the Lord. So don't look for a sign. Look for a savior. Because sin is a prison from which none of us can break free. We've all got to come to the conclusion that Jonah did, that God is our only hope. And when we do, he stands ready to rescue when we cry out in faith. You see, the sign of Jonah is the evidence of God's redemptive power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
As it says, just as Jonah was in the belly of that great fish for three days and three nights, so too was Jesus in the grave for that same period of time. But unlike Jonah, whom God graciously rescued, Jesus remained in the grave until he experienced the full reality of death. And why? So that he might rescue us. Paul tells the Colossians, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We're no more deserving than Jonah was. We're just as guilty of rebellion. And even though we deserve the punishment of death, God gives us deliverance he overwhelms the power of death so that we can have eternal life that's the sign of Jonah so matter no matter how dark or desperate your situation might be God has the power to redeem that's the sign of Jonah he stands ready to rescue that's the sign of Jonah And I want you to notice that Jonah is ultimately giving this praise from inside the belly of the great fish. His circumstances haven't changed, but his heart has, and that's the miracle. That's the miracle. The miracle is God's presence in the midst of our pain. The miracle is the promise of hope in the midst of our heartache. The miracle is worshipful obedience in the response of God's saving and redemptive love. And that may sound impossible to some of you right now, but isn't that what the definition of miracle really is? Something that sounds impossible unless God does the impossible. So let me encourage us all as we navigate life, to know that, that God is near. See, there are times that I think we feel a lot like Jonah. People have said that as we've started this series. I've heard more than one person say, you know, I think I'm a lot like Jonah. And a lot of times I think we say that because we see some of that same rebelliousness in our own hearts, that stubbornness to go our own way. <laughs> we feel like Jonah because we know that we can go to some dark places when we do our own thing. Sometimes, though, we feel like the sailors who are caught in the fury of someone else's sin when we feel like we're being punished for their mistakes. But whatever the circumstances might be, you need to understand that God stands ready to rescue when we cry out in faith. See, the sign of Jonah is God's redemptive power in our dark places. That's the beauty of the message. So let's, as we navigate life, know that God is always near, that he stands ready to rescue. And instead of running from him, let's run to him, knowing that he's faithful even when we're not. 
I had great conversations with Kyle Bassett this week because it really struck me that this went from this narrative story into poetry. And so he gave me some great insights as to what was being communicated here and some things that I wouldn't have recognized on my own. And I'm grateful to him for that. And so to your benefit, I've asked Kyle to just share some things that this passage, how this passage spoke to his heart, just kind of as a testimony. So with that being said, how many of y'all read ahead chapter two before we came here this morning? few of you. Let me encourage a few more to do it next week. And hopefully in hearing from Kyle, you'll see there's benefit to that because that's what he did. And I believe it was a blessing to him. So Kyle, why don't you come up? So that should pick you up. You're good to go. what I learned from the book of Jonah, uh, maybe from a little different perspective. I'm a creative writing major um, at Texas Tech. I'm ordering my PhD. And when I read the book all the way through, it's very short. You probably do it while I'm talking right now. Um, (laughs) I was struck really by the power of irony in Jonah. Um, I am lucky enough to teach uh, at Texas Tech as well. And since my boss, Dr. Norris, is in the audience, uh, I will say that professor is a nice title. Uh, but my official title is graduate part-time instructor. It's not, it's not as sleek, but uh, that's what it is. One day. Um, I'm also an artist fellow at the Charles Adams Studio downtown. Um, I recently became engaged in staging discussions on race and the criminal justice system for the first Friday Art Trail all the while attempting to regularly publish my own work. I'm married to the beautiful Laura Bassett. Uh, Many of you know her as Laura Hamlet. And I am blessed to be part of not one, but two small groups here at Melanie Park. So like many of you, I lead a very busy life. And while my time with the word is always faithful, it is rarely the priority it should be. At this point, it sounds like I'm humble bragging. So let me explain why I listed all of the things vying for my attention in my life. Because when Todd emailed me and asked me to speak about what I had written to him, my first thought was, dude, I'm really busy right now. (laughs) Um, It's the end of my semester. Um, Can't you see how much I participate in already? Uh, I already wrote you a two-page email on this. Can't you just use that and run with it? Um, I was being asked to spread the good news. And instead, I could only think of how this would affect me. In short, I staged my own miniature production of Jonah. (laughs) I promise the irony was not lost on me. So with this being said, let me briefly say a few quick words on irony as I see it applying to Jonah and indeed the broader concept of God's grace throughout scripture. In my estimation, irony needs a certain level of seriousness to be fully realized because it requires the consequence of an action to be the exact opposite of what was expected. If the consequence isn't serious, the irony is often lost. Um, I like to think of irony in terms of degrees. If you were trying to leave your house and you can't find your glasses and you were wearing them the whole time, it's a little ironic. If you're trying to leave the house to go to your ophthalmologist's appointment and you're wearing your glasses the whole time, the irony grows. (laughs) So what could be more serious than the consequences of God's word? There are many types of irony that have been defined over the years, romantic irony, classical irony, situational irony, the list goes on. 
but it seems to me the entire book of Jonah relies on a sense of what scholars term cosmic irony. The philosopher Frederick Heigl described this as a contrast between the absolute and the relative. In the story of Jonah, God is the absolute. This is a pillar of our faith. God, of course, being omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. While Jonah is the one acting relative to the situation he's been given. Instead of doing what he knows to be right, he takes worldly stock of the situation and decides to bolt. Even Todd used irony in his sermon last week when he described Jonah's actions. He said something along the lines of, God told Jonah to get up and go, and Jonah got up and left. It was the opposite of what we expected. The irony, of course, here is twofold. First, we have the irony of a man who has absolute faith in God rejecting his instructions. Jonah had been a prophet long before God's instructions to go to Nineveh, and so it's not like this was his first introduction to divine power. This leads straight into the second irony. Knowing God's absolute power, Jonah still thinks it's plausible to flee from him, as if one can flee from the presence of God. In short, this is one of those moments where I think biblical authors truly intended for us to laugh. The situation is preposterous. Now that he has disobeyed God, instead of leaving him alone or severely punishing him, God does something completely opposite than what I think many of us might expect. In fact, I thought about this. If I was in a writing workshop and a student brought in this story, I'd say you have two options. God either smites him or he lets him go. But it's easy for us to think in terms of binary. God saves Jonah's life, but he does so by imprisoning him. We've only finished chapter one, and the irony is already laid on thick. So what would the story's next serious moment be that this irony could push itself off against? Well, what's more serious than a poem? And what's more serious than a poem as a prayer and a plea to God? And what a prayer Jonah has. Not only does he praise God for saving him, he admits his own wrongdoing and promises to make right by the Lord. He even admits that it wasn't until his life was, quote, ebbing away that he remembered God. How many of us are guilty of the exact same thing? I know that I am. And I don't know if I'd have the strength to admit this fact during what probably felt like impending death inside of a giant fish. So we have this deadly serious prayer showing God that Jonah recognizes his absolute authority. Jonah is freed and allowed to carry out God's mission. And he does it so well that God actually spares Nineveh. And instead of being thankful, not only for his own life and the lives that God spared, Jonah actually has the audacity to become angry with the Lord and begs for death. Again, if this were a writing workshop, I would tell my student to ease off the irony a little bit. I'll try to wrap this up with a final broad observation. Irony only works because the series of events actually had to happen. I know that I would like to think if God came to me with instructions to save an entire city of people that I would instantly obey. I think many of us would like to think this. And yet, what does Jonah do? And the real question we need to ask is what do we find ourselves doing in these moments? See, what's ultimately ironic about Jonah is that while the tale itself seems fantastic, it's something you and I participate in on a daily basis. Not only have we been given the word of God and instructions to spread it, we were given his only son. We may not be trapped in a whale, but we are trapped on this earth until he comes again 
or we meet him after our deaths. And like it or not, we all need to realize that like Jonah, we can be beyond serious in our prayer, but our actions will often speak louder than our words. And the final irony is the irony of God's grace. God cared for Jonah in spite of everything he did to earn God's disappointment. And even though we are just as fallen, he loves us more than we will ever be able to measure in numbers, in songs, or even poetry. That's how beautiful it truly is. Thank you. Good job, brother. Good job. Thank you, man. So I hope you see that there's value to spending time in the Word and considering what it says because that's rich stuff, right? So this next week, we're going to be on chapter 3. <laughs> Read ahead, consider what it means, and then let's walk through it together. We're going to have some baby dedications here in a minute, but before we do that, let me uh, wrap up this time in prayer. Father, I'm so very grateful uh, for your Word for your love, for your grace, <laughs> ironic grace. I love that, that statement, the irony of grace. When we are given such love despite our unfaithfulness to you, what an irony and what a great irony that you have given us your love in the midst of our rebellion. So, Father, we want to come to you this morning just recognizing that you are absolute and we desperately need you. And we want to live faithfully serving you in those daily moments that we've been given to carry out that call that you gave to Jonah. And so may we hear that and may we live that faithfully. Thank you for this church family and the privilege to walk through life together. We pray this in your name. Amen.